welcome everyone to this week's Citizens Climate Training Program. It's a weekly webinar program of Citizens Climate Lobbies that provides CCL supporters like you and I with access to in-depth training opportunities on topics related to climate change and effective climate advocacy. I'm your host, Brett Cease, and tonight we are diving into CCL's Fall 2023 Lobby Training Number 2, reviewing our legislative plan and having a lot of time for Q&A. We're going to be joined by CCL's Vice President for Government Affairs, Ben Pendergrass, and Senior Director of Government Affairs, Jen Tyler, for tonight's training that's going to review more details and the context for our primary and secondary asks, especially now that there's been movement in the House this week, as well as guys for lobby teams as they plan their online meetings. This is the second of two-part recommended training for any volunteer that's planning on being a part of their group's monumental Fall 2023 lobby meetings. So let's get started. Thank you all so much for being here. And now a quick introduction. We have two amazing speakers that I've already introduced. And if you're curious a little bit more about their background, you can listen to part one of our training. But we are joined tonight again by the wonderful Ben Pendergrass and Jen Tyler. Thank you both so much for being here. And if we've done our job well tonight, we're going to do the following three areas of review. We're going to have some updates for you on the current day dynamics in Congress, especially in the House, given the actions that have happened this week, and how we anticipate they might influence our lobbying week and the strategy behind our asks. We're also going to have the chance for us to review both the primary and the secondary asks in case you'd like a little bit more detail or to hear Ben and Jen talk about them again before we tee up Q&A. And before even that, we're going to review how appointment setting is happening and being coordinated for your lobby meetings across the country right now. So to do that, we'll do some reminders and review. We'll then pivot to talking about what's been happening in Congress this week. We'll then do a brief review of the primary and secondary asks in the context of how that fits in with our legislative plan. And the bulk majority of our time tonight will be actually Q&A discussion. So just a reminder, and I can put all these in the chat as well, that all of our trainings are recorded and posted by the next day at cclusa.org forward slash YouTube. So if you're having a hard time finding them, you're welcome to check that out there. I'll also put a link where you can click and find the information on the training that we gave on Monday on reviewing primary and secondary asks, as well as the training that we're going to give tonight, our legislative plan that will be updated by tomorrow with that link here. You can also search for either of those keywords in CCL community. And as always, you're welcome to also check out or even download as we go through things tonight, the one pagers and the documents that we'll be reviewing and using for our lobby meetings. Um, just know that those are already live and ready for you to be using in each of your meetings. A little quick reminder as well that we are targeting the week of November 6th through the 10th for our fall lobby meetings. Uh, Jen will review again why that's important for the target date in just a little bit. We are also making sure to remind everyone that all appointments for meetings are being set by CCL congressional liaisons or somebody they're designated. Unlike our in-person Hill Day in June for our fall lobby drive, we are doing this coordinated by you locally. Since these are online meetings primarily, we're not gonna be sending out a large schedule from CCL headquarters. So just so everyone's clear on that. If you are looking for more resources on how to plan your meeting, we have a wonderful meeting plan template that you can use as a guide to prioritize your ideas for the lobby meeting and your whole team's input can be collected there. Next Thursday, we're actually gonna be reviewing how to lead a lobby meeting. If you're interested and especially this fall might be the first time, you can just join the same time, same place next week for that training. Uh, but just know that we have wonderful review and support and thinking through how you might anticipate an appreciation, what your primary goals for the meeting are, which of the secondary asks, maybe both that you'd like to include, as well as open-ended questions for discussion to anticipate and have a rich dialogue during your meeting. And then the last thing that I'll just uh, review overall as a recap for everyone before Jen dives into a couple of reminders for our liaisons and appointments that are specifically on the call, is that again, lobby teams are being created by the local lead. I know that this is a distributed model across the country right now, truly on the grassroots level that's being coordinated from the ground up. So just again, to clarify that this isn't being something coordinated from HQ beyond tracking your appointment, all of the planning and details and meetings and everything that's really key to getting that meeting set is being done on your group leader level. So with that though, I will pass to you, Jen, and let's go over a couple other reminders. Yeah, thanks, Brett. And I'm so glad to see so many of you here, almost 200 uh, people, uh, such a great turnout. And can't wait to hear all of your 
Fantastic questions. I, I like the second uh, CCU better than the first, where we're doing less talking or more hearing, hearing, hearing your questions um, and, and what's coming to mind for you. So before that, a few recommendations just for liaisons, as Brett said, liaisons are the folks who will be setting the appointments. We're lobbying at a perfect time. November 6th through the 10th is a great week because the following week, um, the government is going to run out of money if they don't refund it. So um, we're coming up against another funding deadline, which one will pull staff away a little bit towards the end of the week. So that's why this first bullet is suggesting we really should target meetings early in that week, Monday or Tuesday. But it's really great time because with the funding deadline comes an opportunity for some of these policies to move forward. And even if the government moves forward with a three month um, funding extension or something like that, there will be major packages that will be moving the end of this year, early next Congress. So the timing is really great for us to get in there and make these asks, but we wanna be mindful of the fact that that funding deadline is looming. So if we can hear, err on the side of the beginning of the week, that's gonna be a little bit better. So we get the full attention of the member and the staff during our meetings. And the second point is, that week is a little bit in flux in terms of the congressional calendar. First, the House was in session, then they're out of session. Um, the end of that week is Veterans Day, which obviously a lot of offices will be doing things in their district. But regardless of what the congressional calendar says, the important part is we should start with the DC scheduler. We should aim for a meeting directly with the member. That's our top priority. If the DC scheduler says the member is not available, and they, we should reach out to the district office, then we can go ahead and do that. But when we're starting out as a liaison, our first contact, we should aim for the DC scheduler to try to get that member meeting. And then of course, if it gets dropped down to staff, that's totally fine. And hopefully we'll have an energy staffer or a climate staffer, an environment staffer in that meeting. Um, and lastly, if you have questions that come up, I know you li liaisons are so great about using the inbox, um, but there's the link again to that email. If you've got any questions, Mindy or myself will be happy to address them and, and help you through anything that comes up. All right, and with that, I think we'll turn to a little update on what's happening in Congress. So as many of you might have seen, we have a new speaker in the House. Um, speaker Mike Johnson was elected this past week and the entire caucus was unanimous in support of Mike Johnson. You might be saying, who is Mike Johnson? Um, he's, a, he's not a super well-known uh, congressman. He has had some roles and some leadership positions within certain parts of the caucus, but all of those roles haven't really shown us what he would do as speaker. So he's not a super known entity. So we don't have great intel on exactly what he's gonna do, how this is gonna play out, but we do know he's a very conservative member. Um, the, the Freedom Caucus and some of the more further to the right members were supportive of him because of his conservative credentials. So we know that about him, but we really don't exactly know how his speakership is going to play out. Some promising signs, Speaker Johnson did propose a plan to extend funding of the government through January 15th or April 15th. He's leaving up which date based on what his caucus supports, um, what his conference supports, but he did propose to extend funding for the government. So he's not aiming for a shutdown as it appears now. Now there's still a little bit of uncertainty. We still need to make sure that, um, you know, conservatives in the house, some of the far right folks would vote for that bill. That's a little bit up in the air, but the speaker has a plan to fund the government, which is promising. And we're also seeing signs from those members who are further to the right that they do have a little bit of a clean slate with Speaker Johnson. So with Speaker McCarthy previously, there was obviously a lot of pressure on him not to support a funding bill that would extend funding for the government. With Speaker Johnson, we're hearing some hardline conservatives say that they're open to a short-term extension because of the fact that they trust Speaker Johnson and that he's taking over at a precarious time and he needs a little more flexibility. So even though we don't know how the speakership is gonna play out and what that ultimately means for our priorities yet, we are seeing some promising signs on the, on the issue of government funding. And we're hopeful that with the way things are going, the Republicans in the House and Democrats um, will be able to pass a funding bill by, by November 17th, which is when it runs out and then the Senate would would also be able to pass that and it gets signed into law. So some, some positive notes, but ultimately a lot of uncertainty, um, but the house is back in business up and running. And with that, I will turn it over to Ben to talk a little bit about what our asks are. 
Good evening. Well, it's it's great to see everybody tonight. I'm with Jen. I always like this training because it's our chance to really have a dialogue, take questions, answer questions instead of talk at you. And since we've already gone over these in depth, I'm just going to give a really brief overview of our primary and secondary asks, and then we can jump right into questions. All right, first off, the primary ask is big wires again. It requires regions to be able to transfer 30% of their peak demand between each other. And it's technology neutral, and that really helps jumpstart the conversation with Republicans. We think this requirement will really help um, trigger a build out of new transmission lines, upgrade existing facilities, create uh, inducements for new grid in technologies, and find different ways like to reduce peak demand and create new generation or storage. These are all good things. It'll make the grid um, more resilient. It will um, help get new um, clean energy sources onto the grid. Uh, these are all, all the positives. And that's that's Big Wires in a nutshell. You can check out Dan Nucitelli's training to really get um, down in the weeds on it again. And we'll just keep it su super high level tonight so we can have more time for questions. It said one of the things that we will have up there, there's a one page leave behind up on community. It's been updated. With more language, the, the one pages for congressional offices and the framing there is kind of for you guys, you know, just to know how to frame it. But the one page is what you want to pass on to congressional offices. There's also a long list of support supporter quotes and endorsements for the bill that you can also print off and use or actually in this case, since we're not in person, just email to the offices in, in, in that case. And once again, always good to review Dana's in-depth uh, webinar on the, the bill. Secondary asks. Two secondary asks this year, the TSP Access Act, the Technical Service Provider Access Act, and the RISE Act. The Technical Service Provider Act fulfills a really important role. One of the things that USDA is really struggling with after the IRA provided $20 billion for agriculture, there's not enough of these technical service providers to really give the advice to agricultural producers and foresters to create you know, help them utilize all these programs. So what it will do is it will create a streamlined certification process for technical service providers and try to address these shortages because we know we're not going to be able to hire 10,000, 20,000 technical service providers under the USDA umbrella. And I think I gave an overview of kind of what those technical service providers do, but they offer planning, design, and implementation guidance to farmers and private forest owners. RISE Act, you know, this is this one's been around for a little bit. And one reason we're bringing the RISE Act back is this is a piece that really has a significant chance of making it into some type of package this year. And it's really important. If you've been following the news, um, the offshore wind industry is struggling a little bit right now. Increased costs, supply lines, increases in interest rates are making it a lot harder to get some of these offshore wind projects up and running. Um, right now, offshore wind is a big part of our climate goals, and right now, up to 25 to 30 percent are in jeopardy. And what Rise Act does by creating a new revenue stream for states to return some of the money from offshore wind leases back to states, it creates an incentive for states to do things to really incentivize offshore wind. So that's one positive. We think it will help the offshore wind industry. The second big positive is it creates a dedicated revenue funding stream for coastal infrastructure, for resilience, for conservation, for ecosystem um, restoration. Uh, as these coastal communities are experiencing climate change, this funding stream is more important than ever. And this is a really important time before we lose out on a lot of this money from these, these leases um, will just disappear into the general treasury. This is a way to get it to the states for these very important projects. And that's why we think RISE is very timely and why we want to make that one of the things we talk about in our November meetings. With that said, I promise to keep it super brief. We can jump right into questions and really hear what's on your mind. Matt, you have to have time to digest all the trainings we've done up to this point and get you guys ready for um, our, our November lobby week. Thank you, Ben and Jen. So just a couple of quick reminders. I'm seeing some friendly questions in the chat. You're welcome to use the chat to share resources 
with each other. If you got a question that you think a fellow volunteer can speak to or answer, feel free to steer those towards the chat still. Uh, but for everything else, especially if you want Ben and Jen's eyes on it, we're going to click on that Q&A icon, that little double speech bubble icon on your Black Zoom toolbar. When you get there, you can either type your question, like you can see here, or you can just look through the available questions and click that thumbs up icon and upvote the ones that you are most interested in answering, since we can only get to the ones that will uh, be most popular here tonight. We have 45 minutes, but uh, we probably won't get to all of the questions. Also, a quick reminder that I am answering some of the ones that I can get to. So you're also welcome to scroll through the answered questions already to get some of those answers, um, given that we're going to try to keep up with as many of these questions as possible. So with that, though, um, I'll save this little reminder question and answer uh, cheat sheet screen so people can be reminded of how to access it. I have the most popular question at this point from the amazing Alex Aminette in Big Timber, Montana, and she is curious about her senator talking with Senator Hickenlooper about permitting and a bipartisan permitting deal. This is great news. However, the aide with the, uh, whom she spoke says they don't want to transfer power to FERC, and she's curious how you would recommend discussing this in their upcoming lobby meeting and why one might object to FERC. No, I mean, this is this is really gets to kind of the heart of Big Wires. Uh, and you might remember in the discussions around this time last year, um, Senator Manchin had a big comprehensive permitting reform bill that he was trying to attach to almost anything that was moving. And one of the major objections to even though Republicans writ large support permitting reform in a lot of different ways, one of their major issues with with the bill was the power it gave FERC over um, citing transmission lines and allocating the costs. And so even though that's that's one way to approach the transmission problem that we know we need to address, big wires is another. It it doesn't tell states or um, these regions exactly how to do it but it just tells them they need to do this transmission and grid enhancing build out, but they get a retain a lot of the authority. There is some backstop authority for FERC if they don't do their jobs, but it maintains that a lot of the same goals. And so that's one way, that's one reason it's really big, big wires while it's not bipartisan right now, we think it's really a bipartisan idea that can get that bipartisan buy-in that we know in a divided Congress is just going to be really necessary to move something forward. But, you know, Sarah Hinkenloper is a, a fantastic champion for this bill and a known bipartisan um, deal maker. And so he's, he's, he's one of the guys that I think can really have these conversations and get it done. Yeah. And just to elaborate, I know, Alex, you're asking specifically, why are people objecting to FERC? And the, the crux of this issue is that building these new transmission lines is going to cost money. Um, it's ultimately going to save money, uh, and there's a lot of data to back that up, that having a lot of interconnect and interconnection within our grid is going to save a lot of money, but the upfront building is going to cost money. So there's going to have to be a, an agreement on to how, how are they built, who's paying for what. And the concern that Republicans have about giving that authority to FERC is that FERC would be making those decisions. And some of the other bills, FERC would be dictating exactly which regions would be building which lines, how the cost would be allocated to different regions, and they would be specifying exactly where the costs lie. So part of the benefit, as, as Ben was alluding to, to this bill is that the costs are still gonna be there. There's no way to get around that if we're, if we're building transmission lines. But on this bill, the regions are deciding that themselves. So the regions are gonna have to get together and negotiate and decide for themselves how to build these lines and who should pay the costs and how much of the cost should they pay. So it leaves it more into the region's hands um, and less in FERC's hands, which is generally um, something that we think, you know, Republicans would be more favorably given that any sort of uh, government kind of involvement in, in state and locality and, and more local um, processes is not viewed favorably, typically by Republicans. Um, so there's a little more, a little more detail on that. That might be helpful if it does come up in your meeting, so you know kind of where that's coming from. Excellent. Here's the next great question that's gotten most upvotes from Matt. Do we think Big Wires has a chance of being bipartisan just because of the content, or have you heard rumblings behind the scenes about Republican interest? We have heard rumblings. 
the it is the content and I, as i said on you know previous calls this discussions around this bill have this has not come out of nowhere you know this bill was not just introduced three weeks ago even though it was but conversations have been percolating for a while on on this this particular solution and so there there have been um some rumblings that there is quiet republican support for it and one thing it's dc is a weird town just because somebody's not a co-sponsor doesn't mean support's not out there it's just sometimes for the the negotiating process it's almost better even if you you do like something you don't necessarily say it out loud um and and i think there's a little bit of that going on because there are a lot of things to like in the bill too just besides getting more clean electricity on the grid it will make our grid more resilient it will make it cheaper it will make it better for national security i mean there's a, it, it will help us respond better to natural disasters if we can move power around which also saves the government money i mean there's a lot of co-benefits to this bill that that there's a lot of favorable desirability and take a look at all the quotes in support of the bill and some might not even mention climate or clean energy but they mention a lot of other things and they come from different places and different industries and and that's a good way to like educate yourself on where all the like things that people might like about this that could make it a, a very bipartisan idea all right, this next one comes from Mark. Beyond big wires, how should we approach the subject of permitting with our elected officials? Well, I, I'll jump in real quick and then I'll let Jen take it over. I mean, just remember, we talked about this in June. We took a really broad aperture to it and said we want permitting reform writ large. We still want a bigger permitting reform package, not just big wires. And so I think you can start off the conversation and like we still what some of was included in the the debt ceiling bill is is a good step forward but we know stuff is left on the table let's continue the conversation about what everybody wants and the good pieces and we think big wire should be part of that but let's get to that bipartisan bill so we know we can get the clean energy infrastructure we know that needs to be built let's get it built and built faster yeah i i agree with all of that and i think you know, there's a lot of good framing on our Monday night call for big wires of how, how do you approach that specific bill with your members. So go back and look at that. But also generally in terms of permitting reform, if you've got a more conservative member, typically the arguments that are going to appeal to them are talking about um, resiliency, the grid resiliency, also a bit about jobs and about um making sure that you know we're we're using these innovative technologies things like that so dealing with all of the extreme weather we've had and keeping lights on um, those arguments are more appealing to conservatives and then on the left the arguments for permitting reform typically i think the same arguments obviously apply on on keeping the lights on and, and resiliency but also the environmental ones the ones that we talk about a lot about emissions reductions putting in place a lot of the reductions we project from the Inflation Reduction Act, we need transmission, we need permitting reform enabled in, in, in order to receive those, those emissions reductions. So I think that's some larger framing you can think about for Democrats and for Republicans, but there's a lot more specifics on big wires in the Monday evening talk. And just to clarify for those, since I'm seeing a couple of questions in the chat on this, that supporters list is available on the same primary ask resource page. It's just the second download button. So if you're looking for who is in support and some of those quotes or more information, feel free to go there. All right, so I think you may have already spoken to this. The next upvoted question here comes from Gage. And it again has to do with approaching Republican offices that might be concerned about giving FERC too much power. Um, you know, that leaves it up to the region gauge rights, but there's always a possibility of skepticism. Is there anything more that you'd like to say that you haven't already on that type of question? No, I mean, you can really refer to the bill. Like, I mean, they don't expect you to be experts in this. The bill itself is pretty technical, but it is actually at the same time really short because the requirements, the requirement, and there's some some technical details in language, but um I mean, if, if an aide has a lot of concern, I think I, I think they can be bothered to read the 15 pages of the bill. I don't know, maybe not on the House side, Jen, right? That's too long for you guys. 
Yeah, I was going to say well, one pager is all we can handle on the house side. Um, <laughs> but just so you know, I'll, I'll keep it brief, but going a little bit into the weeds on it. Um, like we said before, the Big Wires Act does not give FERC authority to decide who builds the lines, who pays for those lines. Instead, it would require that the regions themselves come up with that agreement. Now, Ben mentioned before there is backstop authority. So FERC would basically be giving the regions two years to come up with a plan as to how do they build or change their transmission lines so that they can meet that 30% share requirement. So they've got two years to come up with an agreement. Who builds the lines? How do you pay for them? What technology do we use? If they don't build out that plan, if they don't have a plan at the end of two years, then FERC has authority under the bill to step in and create that agreement for them. So it does put you know pressure on them and a deadline to get this done. Otherwise, it probably wouldn't get done. Um, so that that is there if you do talk about it with staff. That's the only um, avenue under this bill that FERC would have that authority. So as long as regions follow through and do what they're instructed to do, um, there would be no greater authority for FERC under this bill, and it would truly leave it all in the hands of the regions. And one thing, and and these conversations that will probably come up. A big part of this is not like just about the trans. It really is about the cost allocation. Like when you have big transmission wires, say taking wind energy from North Dakota, and none of that wind energy is going to North Dakotans, and it's all going to folks in Chicago. That's really one of the sticking points. Is this in some of the previous things? They worry about giving FERC that authority to say, well, you're going to pay for this anyways in North Dakota even though you're not necessarily seeing the benefits of more electricity. Um, and so it's saying, you've still got to figure out how to build this, but you can figure out a way to decide who pays in a more equitable fashion or fair in your view. And that, that cost allocation is a big sticking point. We had a great uh, discussion today in the forums from uh, my fellow uh, leader here in Minnesota, Katya asking about that cost allocation concern. I just put a link that Dana also followed up in the chat if anyone wants to um, with that. These are all great questions. All right, so let's keep moving on since we have a uh, 63 open ones and uh, we'll do our best to get as many as we can here. Paul asked this next great question. My member of Congress was an enthusiastic co-sponsor of the Energy Innovation Act in the last two Congresses. What's the best way to respond to a question if it comes up in the meeting about the status of the bill in this Congress? And if they can co-sponsor again. Yeah, great question. And I know you guys did a lot of great outreach on that bill in June, so it might come up again. I've heard from some offices who are asking, and the bill has been reintroduced. We had a big um, all supporters call, I think, uh, last month um, that you guys can go back and, and watch the recording if you want to know a little bit more about the status of the bill. But it was reintroduced by Congressman Carbajal out of California and Congressman Scott Peters. And they are both co-leads on the bill. Um, now, can they co-sponsor? I would definitely recommend that they reach out to Congressman Carbajal's office and that they ask to co-sponsor. Congressman Carbajal's team is waiting to add a bunch of co-sponsors in hopes that they can make the bill bipartisan. So there's still some ongoing discussions with select Republicans. Um, that being said, there is a list they're collecting of members who wanna co-sponsor. So as soon as they're ready to pull that trigger, um, folks will be added to the bill. So definitely um, we should we should tell them to follow up with Congressman Carbajal's team um, to make sure that they're they're getting in line, they're on that list, um, and Congressman Carbajal knows of their interests. Excellent. Thanks for asking that, Paul, and thanks for that helpful answer, Jen. Uh, Nathaniel asked this next great question about the Pacific Northwest and other regions may be in a unique situation regarding power and transmission lines utilities are what's known as balkanized and they might have an agency responsible for um, the DOE, not FERC. The Big Wires Act appears to be focused on legislation directed at FERC, but I cannot see if this would also apply to BPA or Pacific Northwest utilities. Um, should the, uh, both the Big Wires Act be extended to the DOE or additional agencies that it isn't currently? Good question. We might have to follow up on that particular one. My understanding is under big wires, the only region, because everybody fits to a certain extent in a region, even if it is balkanized, um, is there is an exemption for the Texas, um, I forget the acronym, independent utility, because Texans like to do things differently. And it gives them the option to opt in. 
but it does not require them to fulfill these same requirements. And this was done for um, some political reasons because it is for some reason very important to Texans to have their own electricity grid, um, even though they would theoretically benefit because as we saw in storms these last couple of years, they were one of the most um, terribly impacted by uh, uh, loss of power. And also Texas is a major energy producing state. And so big wires should technically help you export that uh, electricity to other states. Um, so there's a good incentive for Texas to opt in, um, but my understanding is no other region is exempted. Excellent, thanks so much. Again, a reminder, we're getting a lot of new questions. So feel free to keep using that thumbs up icon that you can see on the screen and you're welcome to scroll down if you're waiting for your question to be answered and also upvote some of the other ones since we're taking these in order of popularity. And right now 13 is the most popular and we've got 200 people on the line. So some of these can get pole vaulted up there pretty quick if there's some demand for it. All right, Lois asked the next question regarding big wires, two part question. One, what are the known concerns of those opposing big wires? And two, in Colorado, according to the Niskanen map Dana presented, it appears Colorado and other neighbors already have 30% peak transmission capability. If that's correct, what are the implications for us? I mean, it, it, that that's great. I think I'm trying to remember I don't have the map in my, my brain, um, but it could still um, impact further planning. Could be, could be a big issue. And I mean, it's not just, the regions are not just states. They're usually a conglomerate of several states. And I think I see, right, Brett, did the question ask like what other opposition questions were coming up? Yes, yep. And so, I mean, we have not heard a whole lot of opposition. One of the biggest issues that has come up, generally speaking, is just the idea of there are regulated and unregulated utilities. And the regulated utilities are basically monopolies given to um, these companies in certain states. And so that they already don't have as much flexibility because they are the only provider. And, and that's a question that's coming up is whether or not, you know, how that affects regulated utilities, whether or not like these requirements impact them the same. Um, and arguments are made that this is good across the board, but just more, I would say more questions than opposition at this point has come up. Excellent. This next one comes from Danella. Can you say again how big wires qualifies as a permitting reform category bill? We say in our request email that we want to talk with our member of Congress about permitting reform, but I would like help to connect how it qualifies as that. Don't worry. It does. And I mean, and, and you have to remember, you can look at Representative Peters and Senator Hinkeloper's materials, and they are clearly framing it as permitting reform. Um, we will actually be hearing from um, Senator Hinkeloper on the bill and why he thinks it's important at the conference next week. And I'm sure he will talk a little bit about that, but he thinks, and we do as well, that it falls squarely in the permitting reform and that's going to help us modernize our grid in a faster fashion and will be complementary and kind of fit in with some of the stuff that was in the debt ceiling uh, agreement, as well as like in this conversation about the further permanent reforms we need. Excellent. All right, so next great question here from Jeff. Will Speaker Johnson's beliefs around climate change affect any proposed climate legislation coming to a floor vote? How do those two interplay? This is actually a question I'm seeing a couple of times in the chat. So I think you can speak in broad to this. Yeah, good question. and. Honestly, a lot is unknown because we haven't seen Speaker Johnson in many leadership positions. We haven't seen him in a in many chairman positions of committees. So, so he's got a legislative record, obviously, and public statements that are not positive about climate and certainly don't align with what we're doing. Um, that being said, we haven't seen him juggle the interests interests of the caucus of the conference. We haven't seen him navigate some of the other priorities that were outstanding and some of the things that Speaker McCarthy left behind dealing with forestry and wildfire issues that have crossed over obviously into the climate realm. So there's still a lot to be to be found out about how Speaker Johnson's going to operate. Um, but yeah, it, it is disheartening. Um, definitely some of the some of the public statements that directly contradict um, you know the, the, the science 
Um, but I think we're really going to have to see how this plays out and how he balances all the pressures um, that he's he's fielding as speaker now. Excellent. Thank you for clarifying that and all the great questions around it, given the importance of now having a speaker and knowing how to relate. Tori asked this next question. In arguing for big wires, CCL keeps talking about being able to provide cheaper renewable energy to the grid. What evidence do we have that renewables are cheaper than fossil fuel energy? When sourcing renewables, it seems like it's usually sold at a cost premium. I want to be sure if arguing this will save money, since that does seem to maybe be one of the common concerns. We have evidence for this. Where would you point, Tori? No, I mean, certainly, like you can find some stuff. I'm sure we have some of the stuff online, I'm sure Dana's covered it, that the cost of renewables has been falling a lot faster than that of, of fossil fuel. And but big wires in particular, that's not the argument. The idea when it comes to um, decreasing costs for consumers is if you can get electricity to move around the country more efficiently and easier, you can send cheap electricity to places where it's already more expensive. And so there are definitely like, it's talking about like it is a different cost in different parts of the country to generate electricity from whatever form. And so this creates a more um, fluid marketplace where you can get place, products to where um, demand is high and it's more expensive from places where there's an excess and it's cheaper. So that is where the argument for this could lower costs for consumers, not to mention when you're not um, having blackouts and you're getting your your infrastructure uh, more efficient, that saves money too. Jen, do you have anything to add there? Yeah, I'll just add generally on transmission, um, you know, one of the one of the big factors um, with with the IRA and the fact that we had all these projected emissions reductions in benefiting all of these these clean energies is that those clean energy projects are not able to connect to the grid. We're not able to get those off the ground and get those one permitted to be built, but then two get that energy into our actual electrical grid to be used. So that's part of the cost barrier and part of the emissions reductions barrier. So if we do have more transmission lines being built and this interconnected system, it's going to make it easier for a lot of these renewable energy projects to connect to the grid. And right now there's more renewable energy projects that are new that need to be connected to the grid than there are fossil fuel projects. So even though a grid is going to benefit a fossil fuel project, if it was coming online the same way it would benefit a renewable energy project, there's just far more renewable energy projects waiting to be built or they have been built that are waiting to be connected to the grid. Um, so those are vastly going to, you know, benefit from transmission reform and allowing them to access the grid more easily is going to bring down that cost to the project sponsors, the people building and ultimately bring down the cost of that uh, renewable energy. This doesn't relate as much to the cost, but I like some of the framing that Senator Hinkenloper and, and Representative Peters have done, is this is, in a lot of ways, like we have an interstate system. We could build an entirely new interstate system, or we can start to build more on-ramps and more off-ramps to utilize what we already have, and, and Big Wires does a little bit of that. Like it creates more on-ramps, or will incentivize the building of more on-ramps um, to get that energy there and then more off-ramps to get to people who need it. Excellent. There's also a great Niskanen article that I put in follow-up to Tori's answer, but I'll just put in the chat there too with some of the other studies that um, you know can help build out that argument if you're interested. All right, so Bruce asked this next most upvoted question here. My left of center member of Congress believes that the Technical Service Provider Act, Access Act, mainly benefits factory large agricultural operations how do we specifically counter that concern? I mean, yeah. well, first, oh, go ahead, Jen. Well, I was just going to say, I think the very nature of the TSP Access Act totally contradicts that argument. Uh, technical service providers are individuals that help farms, ranchers, forestry um, operations with one-on-one -on -one assistance to gain access to these conservation programs. So they're basically individuals that help operations navigate a more complicated um, conservation program system, figuring out what programs can they benefit for, how do they access them, how do they apply, how will they get the money and when will they get it or the resources 
um, large factory farm operations typically don't need as much of this uh, handholding and one-on-one and -on -one assistance because they are these large operations who have been using um, some of this funding for a long time. And the times I've heard this brought up in a couple of meetings, I'll just flag, it's a little bit reminiscent of the arguments that we heard against the Growing Climate Solutions Act um, last Congress from some, some members on the left. And I think it was really boiling down to just some um, false arguments about the Growing Climate Solutions Act, but that was about carbon credits. Um, so we need to clearly distinguish and make sure people understand the difference between this bill and that bill because the bills are getting conflated. So just flagging that if you go into the meeting, making sure we're clarifying what the TSP Access Act really is and that it, it is not um, building off of or related to the Growing Climate Solutions Act. Um, and the very nature of technical service providers are that they're helping um, farms and ranchers who don't have the resources to navigate some of these more complex uh, conservation programs. And I was just going to add on Monday's call, we had a great video um, that got exactly to this from one of our chapter leaders in her conversations um, and her firsthand experience talking about the bill. She really, it really was made apparent to her in talking to people that this program really would benefit um, smaller farmers. Excellent questions. These are all great. And that was all thanks to Linda Marin. So if you haven't checked that out, it's in our first part of the lobby training under reviewing primary and, and our secondary asks. All right. So I think we've already talked a little bit about this, but if you could expand, the next mode upvoted question is from Marianne. Just to prepare for opposing arguments, what are the main objections you're hearing about the increasing Technical Service Provider Act? Anything more that you'd like to add on on that one? I mean, the one the one concern I've heard voice is um, one office has brought up a concern of conflict of interest. And but a lot of times with conflict of interest things, every bill that is pat, written, passed, put into law, there's then a rulemaking process. And that's when USDA or whatever agency is implementing the law. And that's where like concerns like those are usually addressed. It says like, you know, I think the specific example was, could a seed salesman become a technical service provider and then say, well, my technical service advice is just you buy all my seeds. I mean, that's a very simple analogy. And and so that's the only concern I have heard broached. Um, but that that particular concern um, will likely be addressed in um, the rulemaking process. And honestly, like those kinds of conflicts of interest that is also like part of the marketplace. You, if you're if you're hiring a technical service provider that has a Monsanto shirt on, maybe you should think twice if he says well, you just need to buy Monsanto products. That that might be a little flippant, but I, I do I do truly believe that um, most of the concerns will be addressed in rulemaking. And and another thing is like all bills, um, this will hopefully go through a markup period where like you can hash out the technical service provider. Act was just introduced in the spring. Um, and in any bill, when it's introduced, there's a refinement that goes on um, where you look at um, various ways the bill can improve. And this particular bill, we think it has a really good chance to be included in the farm bill when that starts to move. And so it doesn't have to be taken in its entirety. You can take the best parts and make improvements as part of that process as well. Excellent. Then just keeping up here, a reminder again, you can always find the answered chats. I'm trying to do some of these as we're going through here. Um, and another reminder to upvote. If you haven't yet, click that little thumbs up icon here so that we can get to the most popular questions in our last 15 minutes. Uh, again, we have 55 open questions, so we'll not be able to get to all of them. But if you want to influence the ones that you're most interested in, click that little thumbs up icon. Thanks so much, Ben and Jen. You two are doing wonderfully. And Mike asks the next most popular question. Looking at the supporters list, I see a few renewable energy champions and left-leaning organizations. Could you highlight some supporters that would resonate on the right? Is this specific to Big Wires? Yes, and if you want, I can even uh, highlight this list here so that you can look at it while we're together. Here's kind of the zoomed out list. No, I mean, certainly um, the Clean Power Association is is a is a bipartisan organization that it works with both sides of the aisle. Um, 
one of the ones I saw, like when you're looking at the quotes, Neil Chatterjee, the Republican ch former chairman of FERC, is a big supporter of Big Wires and is a very well-respected voice on energy issues up here in D.C. by both Republicans and Democrats, and he was actually a, a Trump appointee. Um, and so those are some just off the, the top of my head. But you have to remember some of these things. Yeah, there are some left-leaning, but we need we need folks from all sides. And I think this is a pretty broad coalition. Um, and I think it will give, give Democrats, obviously, a lot of, you know, feeling good about it. But I think there are definitely some some names you can point to on, on the Republican side. And we can maybe even try to go back and highlight the ones um, in a in a period where I'm not trying to speed read all, I think, 80 endorsers to know which ones on appeals to who the most. Excellent. Yeah. yeah if you John, John just pointed out EEN is, is a big supporter and they have a, a lot of credibility on the right. And there's there's a couple organizations there. Excellent. Yep. Thanks for that. This next one comes specifically from Texas and uh, their concern about ERCOT being excluded, um, you know, or at least, you know, given the permission to opt in if they so choose with big wires, is there a better primary ask for Texans or what might you say to that? Now, I think it's still a good primary ask for, for, for Texas. And I think the angle is that if you are an energy producing state, you want to be able to move that energy out of state. And this would help Texas to export and would be good for Texas producers. And I think also the reliability and but still, and this is the key for Texas, is we're giving it's giving them the choice. It's not forcing anything on them and they get to come around if they think it's a good idea. But I know um, and when we heard some of those murmurings, like whether or not people thought this was a good idea, some of those murmurs on the Republican side were coming from Texas. Um, they just want to make sure they have the choice at the end of the day, but they were looking and thinking this might be a pretty good bill. Um, so I don't think there's any reason to to shy away from um, bringing it up, but I would highlight those those issues. Good for energy producing states, the reliability that has definitely impacted Texas, and the fact that it's their choice. And I'd also say, listen, not lose sight of the bigger the bigger priority here, which is we want comprehensive bipartisan permitting reform legislation to pass both chambers and get signed into law. In order to do that, one of the stickiest issues is transmission. So we're advocating for big wires because we think it's the most strategic ask, most likely to be bipartisan in the transmission space. But ultimately, we want to figure out that transmission piece in order to have a larger package with all of the other permitting reform pieces. And those other pieces are really going to benefit states like Texas. And a lot of lawmakers from Texas have been very vocal on some of those other pieces of permitting reform. So even though they might not feel as connected to big wires because of their situation, what big wires can unleash in terms of a larger permitting reform package is going to ultimately benefit Texas and, and would be in their interest, which is part of why they have been so engaged on the transmission piece. Excellent point, Jen. Yeah, these are all great. So here's a couple of questions that combined get up to the popular um, threshold. And that is, is big wires currently accepting co-sponsors? Can you clarify if that is the case, or are we asking not for co-sponsorship, but for inclusion in a larger ultimate government omnibus package? No, I think it's fine to ask for co-sponsors. And this is a similar thing that's happening in the Energy Innovation Act. They're holding the list. They're creating a list of co-sponsors and will likely add co-sponsors in two-by-two two pairs if they add them. And this is just, you know, a technique that is not that unusual sometimes just to prevent a bill from getting too lopsided right out of the gate. And so it holds open the space for conversations. So expect, yeah, like anybody can reach out to either Senator Hinkenloper or Rep Peters, um, ask for their name to be added to a list of potential co-sponsors. And as we we bring together these pairs, um, they will decide to add some, and they still might add some strategic um, uh Democratic co-sponsors too, if they were chairman of key committees or can help move the conversation forward. Um, but they're they're being thoughtful about this. But we can still make the ask and offices understand the way this process works. Excellent. Here's a, another question that kind of is combining three of them here. And that is speaking up a little bit more about the RISE Act. Can you talk a little bit, especially for non-coastal districts or states, 
The benefits again are translate why that would still be appropriate for a secondary ask. And then also what progress has been made since June in talking about the RISE Act and how would that help kind of sell this uh, and why we're confident kind of that this should be a final push as part of our November asks. Yeah, I'm happy um, to take that first part. Maybe you can take the second, Ben. Um, so the first part for inland states, we have a great um, one pager just for inland states. So you can find that on the secondary ask page under the RISE Act. And that details everything I'm about to share and then more. But essentially the RISE Act, in addition to all of the incentives and benefits for offshore wind, it lifts the cap on LWCF funding. So LWCF is the Land and Water Conservation Fund. It's a really large federal fund that's given to states um, to fund a bunch of different projects, parks, wetlands, um, waterways, uh, a ton of different kind of conservation environmental um, projects that a state or locality might, might wanna take on. So um, the bill lifts the cap. Right now there's a $125 million cap on the LWCF. And if the revenue into that fund goes above that, it just isn't allocated to the LWCF. And we are seeing the funding for LWCF really increase. So by lifting that cap, um, which is currently in place until I think 2055, um, we're gonna allow more funding come into the LWCF and more funding therefore go to the states for all of these different sorts of projects. So um, if you have a member who's not from a coastal state, do Google just land and water conservation fund project in whatever state you're in, you'll see tons pop up. Every state has them. Um, and that's really gonna be the primary benefit for states that are not coastal. There's another small provision that changes a mineral leasing fee provision to make it so that um, it's an equitable distribution and there isn't an additional fee going to the Department of Interior. Um, that's more minor and is only gonna apply to certain states like Wyoming and New Mexico. Uh, that's Let's all say on the New Mexico, fee. it's a big deal, Jen. It's a big <laughs> yeah, deal. I forgot, I forgot, sorry. Um, <laughs> a coastal state person here. Um, uh, yeah, so you can look on the fact sheet for that, but the big one is gonna be that land and water conservation fund benefit that just benefits every state um, and will be really, really important over the next couple of decades. And I think with particularly Democratic lawmakers in inland states, um, this is a bill that we think will benefit offshore wind, clean energy, and will help us meet our emissions reductions to goals. Without offshore wind, it's going to be really hard to reach some of those targets we're aiming for, for 2030 and beyond. And so I think you can, if they care about um, climate as an issue, even though it might not directly benefit their states as much as some of the coastal states, um, I think that's an argument worth making um, for sure for some of those states. And as far as like momentum, like, I mean, really what we talked about a little earlier, RISE came extremely close to making it into the same end of the year package that the Growing Climate Solutions Act made it into last year. Um, it just barely missed out. And, and that's why we think it is still highly relevant to push now. And a lot of these leases are ha happening or have happened and the bill is retroactive, um, but it's key um, as we said, to make sure we don't lose some of these offshore wind projects to do whatever we can to support offshore wind right now. And RISE Act would really boost it. And the sponsors, Senator, I was just talking to Senator Whitehouse's office a couple of days ago. They are like, please push for it. We think we can get it through. We think it's extremely important. Um, and, and, and also just perseverance. You know, we have done a really good job of taking on some of these things and sticking with them. And we passed a lot of our secondary ask, the BEST Act, um, the Use It Act, the Growing Climate Solutions Act, the Climate Ready Fisheries Act, and sometimes it takes us one or two Congresses um, and we stick with it and we think we can get it done. And this might be our best shot for like a while on this particular bill. All right, so we have five minutes left. We've effectively answered half of the questions, just over. We've had 100 questions, 101, and we've answered 51 of them. So great work, everyone. A reminder that we will have any of these that aren't answered tonight available in the forums. But here are the final three. How do electric utility companies, DOE, and um, FERC feel about big wires? That's one big question as the first one. DOE, FERC, and electric utilities in general. Well. FERC and the and DOE don't usually make opinions on legislation. I and mean, FERC has certain rulemaking authority, and some of the things 
um, that have been considered as part of permitting. Like FERC could potentially do rulemaking around, um, and they could, you know, say something is a good idea or a bad idea. But I would note that two former FERC chairmen have supported big wires, if that's any indication, a Republican and a Democrat. Um, so that that's pretty good. That's pretty good bipartisan uh, endorsement from the FERC side. DOE would weigh in as, um, you know, when the Senate would ask them for technical opinions, but they wouldn't like issue an opinion on a piece of legislation publicly. And the utilities are, unless Jen, you've seen something, I think they're staying a little quiet right now in Big Wires. Um, I was in one meeting with um, a, where there were some utilities talking and they were they were taking a look at it. They were still still thinking about how they felt about it at that time. Um, and sometimes they're they're going to be very careful. Um, but that's that's where I see the state of play for that that question at this point. Excellent. All right. So then this next one is from Gene. Could you speak about the larger package that may include more permitting reform legislation and when we might possibly see this? Jen, you want to jump in? <laughs> sure. We, um, we might have different opinions on this. I don't know. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I think I'm I'm hopeful that the next um, few large legislative packages that have to pass, including the upcoming potential funding bill at the mid-November, end of November, um, if that's a short-term funding bill, then the next uh, funding bill, which hopefully will be a much bigger, larger one in January or in April, as well as the National Defense Authorization Act, um, part of the funding package that would include a lot of these uh, foreign uh, spending priorities, Ukraine, Israel, humanitarian aid, Taiwan, um, all of these big legislative packages have to move at some point in the near future, in the next few months or so. Um, so I think that presents our biggest opportunity, our best opportunity to get permitting reform through next. Now we do have obviously all of next year, um, but next year is an election year. So as we get closer to the end of the year, it's gonna be harder and harder to move stuff. So I think we've got these big packages moving soon. It's much easier to get this through if it's attached to a large package. So um, yeah, that's my, that's my view. What about you, Ben? I think Jen's largely correct. I mean, we've been, I would say like it's a it's a dynamic time in Washington, <laughs> for sure. And I think one thing that kind of like you know has left everybody scrambling a little bit is the speaker fight. You know, originally we knew we got that extension, and for forty five days it was bipartisan. Um, we didn't know what was going to happen immediately with McCarthy. We thought that there would probably be a motion to vacate the chair, and so if 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 that hadn't happened, there was definitely going to be a big package like Jen was alluding to at that 45 day mark, it might create a really good space for bipartisanship. Now we have these two other dates, um, January 15th, April 15th that, that Jen alluded to. Um, and so that, yeah, there's there's definitely a couple different points. And the other thing that uh, is kind of a side to that is conversations are continuing to happen. Um, one of the things um, I think might've been in the blogs forums and stay tuned for is we just organized the first briefing for the bipartisan climate solution caucus. I say we like CCL and some of our friends on permitting reform. And there's still a lot of bipartisan interest in this. And so these conversations can continue. Chairman Manchin's talking with ranking member Barrasso. Um, this is one reason we're talking about now because we think even if it doesn't happen in the next two months, we got like a, a window here to really push this issue and keep hammering it until we we achieve something big on permanent reform. And you're always welcome to log your trainings. If you just go right through the action tracker under chapter and volunteer development, you can search from there. For example, the legislative plan here tonight um, would come up. Um, and so with this, um, we are so grateful for you being here tonight. If you have any follow-up, you can go to cclusa.org forward slash forums. And at this point, um, we would love to continue to have the chance to be in dialogue between now and your lobby meetings. So know that uh, with anything else that we can do to support you, you're in great hands with Jen, with Ben, with Mindy, with the whole liaison support team and regional coordinators. Um, thank you all so much for your time tonight. We really appreciate your input. And I'm just going to unmute all lines so that we can see each other's faces. 
and hear each other's voices as we sign out tonight. Stay safe, everyone, and have a wonderful rest of your evening. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.